How do you write a biography of someone you've never met? You know, if I were writing a biography about my granddad, for instance, I would have all the material I would need to fill a book. And I really wouldn't need to ask my brother or my cousins or my aunts or my uncles because I would want to share my perspective, my story. I mean, after all, I lived it. I have my own memories. And that is sort of the story of the gospel writers that we know as Matthew and John. They wrote firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus. After all, they were one of his, two of his 12 disciples. They lived with him for three years. They saw miracles. They heard the stories and the parables with their own ears. They're sort of like two different cousins writing their account of their granddad, their own biography. I call John the artsy cousin uh, because he just, do you have one of those? Like he just sort of, his stories are so unique, so different. He sees things from such a different perspective, but it's their stories. Now, if I were going to write a biography of Emily's grandmother, my wife, Emily over here, I mean, of course, I mean, I know all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles, and I could ask them. We see them maybe at holidays or maybe in the summer, but I, I live with her. So probably every night I would ask her to tell me a story or to give me a quote about her grandmother, and I would write it down. And maybe if I didn't quit, get it quite right, I would ask her to, to maybe repeat that story. That is kind of the story of Mark who wrote an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but he was not a disciple of Jesus, but he was a disciple of someone who was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower under the leadership of Peter. So when we read Mark's perspective, we are reading the perspective often of Peter, perhaps the stories that stuck out to Peter and the stories that Peter told over and over, maybe at night around a campfire, or maybe the stories that Peter, Peter would use in sermons. Most scholars believe that Mark is the earliest of the gospel accounts written about Jesus, that the other gospel writers actually may have even had a copy of Mark in their hands as they were writing their own. But if I were writing a biography about your grandparent, about your grandmother, your granddad, I mean, I would approach it much differently. I would want to talk to all the, all the children. I would want to talk to all the grandchildren, you and all your cousins. I would probably want to talk to some business associates, some, some friends, some neighbors. I would want to get the whole story because I don't know them at all. I would need to do some research. If I was going to write a biography about someone whom I have never met. And that is the story of the gospel of Luke. And it is why we are calling it Jesus, a research project. Good morning, my name is Carter McKinnis. I'm lead pastor here at Mountaintop and I am so glad that you have come. And I just want you to know, I'm so glad to be pastor of a church that I can wear a jersey on Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, I just, if there was a day to wear my Mountaintop jersey, so, all right, who's going Chiefs? I know Luke and Savannah asked her, who's going, uh, y'all are real excited, you sound real excited. Um, who's going Niners? I think, I think Niners win the room, I think Niners win the room, but we'll see who wins the game. I just hope everyone has a good time. Um, 
If you are brand new here today or you are brand new tuning in, thank you so much for welcoming us into your living room and into your lives. It could not be a better day to be new because we are beginning a brand new series that will lead us up to Easter in which we are looking at this, this idea of the Gospel of Luke and stories that are unique to him. And, and you may notice like on even this logo for our series what is the deal? Why does it say a five-year journey? Or why does it say volume three? If you're relatively new to Mountaintop, a couple of years ago, even if you're here in the last year, a couple of years ago, I began a, a five-year process leading up to Easter for, for the next five years of teaching through the unique stories that are found in each gospel account, the unique teachings, healings, parables, miracles, and stories, and, and maybe sometimes it's, it's even just a quote that are unique to each gospel story. So two years ago, we began with Matthew, and we called it an eyewitness account because Matthew was an eyewitness. Last year, we're just taking them in order that we find them in our Bibles. We did uh, Mark, a from the friend of a friend, because often he's sharing Peter's perspective. And so if you are newish to Mountaintop in the last year, you can go to our website, you can go to our YouTube, and you can uh, watch those if, if you like. We'd love for you to, to catch up with that if you want to. This year, we're in Luke, and we're calling that a research project. Next spring, leading up to Easter, we will, we will fill in the U, and we will look at, at John, who was quite a storyteller. I mean, John just has some of the big stories. And after those four years are complete, in the spring of 2026, leading up to Easter, we will finish it up by, by studying some of the more iconic stories about Jesus that we didn't read because they're in two or three or maybe even all four gospel stories. Some of the most famous and familiar stories and miracles uh, that we'll see in that, that, uh, that spring. So are excited about that. I, ho I hope that uh, it, it'll be a great six, seven weeks that we lead up to Easter. We'll kind of conclude this on Good Friday. So these next six to seven weeks are stories that are only found in the Gospel of Luke. Quotes that are only found, parables that are only found, miracles that are only found. And it's a great season over the next couple of months to read through the Gospel of Luke. We'd love to have you do that. We have some free study guides, small group study or personal Bible study if you want to use them. When you walk out, grab one of those and like, let's make a commitment together to read through the whole Gospel of Luke all the way leading up to Easter Sunday. This is also important to me because biblical literacy is so important to me. In this book, we believe are the words of life. It can make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But this book did not fall from the sky. It was written by humans, empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these four accounts of Jesus' life, what we call gospels, are written by Four different guys with four different perspectives and four different backgrounds. So let's talk a little bit about this guy that we're going to be studying for the next couple of months as we get ready for Easter. This guy named Luke. Now Luke is really interesting because he is the only gospel writer that, that, that didn't stop really with this kind of historical account. He wrote his account of the life of Jesus and then he wrote the follow-up story called the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. It's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in your Bibles, the Acts of the Apostles. And it is the story of the birth of the church, of the beginnings of the Christian movement. 
And it's clear, it's, it's, the only, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's the only thing like it. It's the only documentation we have of the inner workings of what was happening in the church as it grew. Now Luke wrote both of these to a man named Theophilus. They appear to be letters to this man named Theophilus and no one else in the whole Bible mentions Theophilus. We do not know exactly who he is. Scholars have some ideas that he is perhaps a prestigious person. He might have been a Roman official. He could have been one of the high priests. And some scholars believe that he was actually Luke's lawyer when Luke went on trial for his faith before Rome. Luke was also the most educated of the gospel writers. He was a physician, and his education comes out in his writing. He approached it in much a more academic way. He's a phenomenal writer, and Luke shares a distinction that is different from any other author of any book in all of the 66 books of the Bible. He's different from everybody else, and that is that Luke as far as we know, was not raised Jewish. Now, he may have been Jewish by nationality, by ethnicity. He may have been Jewish by, by his blood, but it is crystal clear that he was not raised as a part of the Jewish faith, that this was not where he came from. Because Paul notes in one of his letters when Luke is with him that that there are only a couple of the people that are with him that are what he calls of the circumcision. And Luke is not one of them, though Luke is with him. Meaning Luke was not circumcised on the eighth day like every good Jewish little boy would have been circumcised. So Luke may have been Jewish, he may have been Gentile, but here's what we know, his family wasn't practicing. He, he could, if he was Jewish, he was what's called a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he was a Jew by, by blood, but he was raised in a much more Greek way. But somehow, this man who was not raised really religious came to faith as an adult and got involved in the early church. And in fact, he eventually ends up on the missionary journeys with Paul. It's funny, if you read the book of Acts, there is a switch about midway through where Paul, the, the, he, he starts going from third person to first person. He goes from they to we. There's this switch where he's describing Paul and the journeys and, and his other conf, uh, confidants of, of just, well, they're doing this, they're doing that, and then all of a sudden it turns to we because Paul joined the journey. But here's what, uh, I mean, Luke joined the journey. He used his disadvantage to his advantage. He did research. Listen to how he opens up the Gospel of Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And maybe he's sitting there with the Gospel of Mark in his lap. Maybe he knows that other people are writing the things just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he recognized that's not me. They're guys like Matthew and John who were eyewitnesses. They wrote their accounts. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. That's like, I'm a little bit better writer than those guys, so we're going to make an orderly account here, you know. Somebody's got to organize this. For you, most excellent Theophilus, I too, uh, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. His might be, Luke's account might be the most robust 
of all the gospel accounts because he's the only one that's not just writing from memory or his perspective or one person's perspective. It's from many. Have you ever wondered, for instance, have you ever wondered why Luke's gospel is the only one that has a birth narrative? Luke's gospel is the only one that talks about how the angel visited Mary and how she conceived by the Holy Spirit and the whole ordeal in Bethlehem and how to have. Have you ever wondered why Luke's the only one? Luke might have been the only one that sat down with Mary and said, hey, tell me what happened when Jesus was born. Luke probably talked to lesser-known disciples like Nathaniel and Bartholomew and Philip and James, son of Alphaeus. He probably talked to James, the brother of Jesus. It's most certain that Luke spent some time talking and investigating and hearing stories from the women, from Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James the Less and Joanna, the three women that Luke mentions that were at the empty tomb on the first Easter morning. Can you imagine Christianity without Luke? Can you imagine Christmas without Luke chapter 2 in Bethlehem and shepherds and angels? So today we're going to kick off the series with a miracle that is only found in Luke. And we're beginning this in chronological order. So this is very much at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is found in Luke chapter uh, five, if you want to be turning in your Bibles for that. But this, this touches on something that, that, well, we all struggle with, and that's this, the other side of obedience. The other side of obedience. If you have raised toddlers, you know this is an issue. Right? Amen. We got some young parents that amen. Hallelujah. I trust in God, right? Um, <clears throat> toddlers do not want to obey because in their stubborn little minds, they think they know better than you. And they think obedience will be terrible, right? They think sleeping will be terrible. They think brushing their teeth will be terrible. They think eating vegetables will be terrible. They think sharing their toys will be terrible. They do not want to do what you tell them to do because they think it will be terrible if they do what you tell them to do. They don't know what's on the other side of obedience. They don't know the consequences of disobedience. That exhaustion will be worse. Cavities, worse. Being malnourished, not growing like you should as a kid will be worse. Not having any friends because you're selfish and you won't share, it'll be worse. Now, it'd be, it'd be great if we just grew out of that, right? <laughs> but we don't. We all struggle with the other side of obedience. We, we all struggle with with being told what to do. We're not sure obedience will be better than what we've got. I mean, the doctor tells us, you know, listen, you probably need to exercise more and eat a little bit better. Is, is anybody's doctor ever told them that? You don't have to raise your hand. And we're like, right, 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 right. <laughs> Thanks, doctor. <laughs> you said that. 
I mean, you've never told your doctor no, but you stopped by Krispy Kreme on the way home anyway. Because you're like, I mean, I know he's got a medical degree, I, you know, but he, I don't know that I'm going to like it on the other side. Your financial planner says, you know, you really ought to save more. And you're like, sure, sure, sure. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. It's a good idea. And then deep in your mind, you're like, I mean, I know she's got a master's in finance, but I like Amazon. And so I can't have this both. We struggle with the other side of obedience. We can't see the other side of the fence where obedience is. We can't see over there. And and to go to the other side of obedience, that means we have to yield. We have to surrender. We have to submit. We have to relinquish control on the other side of obedience. Over here on this side of obedience, I mean... It might not be great, but it could be bad over there because here's what we know. What if they're wrong? What if God's wrong? I just don't want to do it. Here's what I know is over there. Here's what I know is over there. I can peek far enough to see this. I know there's change over there. I'm not sure I want to change. Change is scary. And, And it's not that bad over on this side of obedience. And over there, we're just like a toddler. I mean, if we do what we're asked to do, what if it's terrible? This morning, here's what we're going to see Jesus challenges with. What if over there on the other side of obedience, what if there's blessing? What if there's abundance? What if there is a life that you and I could never have imagined. But we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 5. If you got your Bibles, you like reading there or your, or your app on your phone. If you're home, you got your Bible in front of you. If you're in the room and you don't have a hard copy, please take one at the bookshelf. So we want this to be, uh, to, we'd love that be our gift to you so you can read Luke and have a hard copy with you there uh, for the next couple of months. Uh, this is the beginning, as we said, of Jesus' ministry. And Luke says, Things are kind of getting crazy around Jesus already very early on. It says, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, this is the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. That's just what they call the western shore. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of the Lord. So it is clear that very early on in Jesus' ministry, he is getting a following. People are listening to the teaching. People are are wanting to hear more. But the problem is, it is shoulder to shoulder. It, I mean, it is body to body. It is you can't move. Jesus can't even hardly get where he can speak to the whole crowd. They're crowding around them. So Jesus sees a potential solution if he's going to teach the people again and everybody be a little bit more comfortable. He saw at the water's edge Two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Okay, so first of all, uh, before we finish this passage, um, it's not uncommon for fishermen to be in groups of two boats. 
so that they were, they, most fishermen had a business associate. We find here that one of these belongs to Simon, and he has a brother named Andrew. It's not mentioned there. We find that later on in the story. And the other boat apparently belongs to, later on we find this, to these other sets of brothers who also become future disciples of Jesus, James and John. So not uncommon for two boats to be together, two fishing boats to be together. Also, Simon, the reason he just kind of pops up is because it's not the first time he's mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. In the chapter before, in chapter 4, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. He comes and does some teaching and ends up at Simon's house somehow. And his mother-in-law is deathly ill and Jesus goes into the bedroom, heals her. She comes out and makes a meal for everyone. So they know each other, but... That's all we know at this point. And then this is what it says. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So he, he goes out just a little bit from the shore. And Jesus teaches the people from the boat. Uh, 16 years ago, and as I was thinking about this, Exactly 16 years ago, my wife Emily and I were in Israel. We got blessed with the opportunity to go on a tour of Israel. And I know that it was exactly 16 years ago for two reasons. One, we were there on Valentine's. You remember that? We were there on Valentine's. And we have a 15-year-old son who was born in May. She was six months pregnant going to Israel. And listen, I'm very impressed with T. Swift making it from Tokyo, you know, to, uh, to Las Vegas. But six months, 13 hours on a plane from Atlanta to Tel Aviv, that's a, I mean, that's a hero right there. I'm telling you. That was, that was impressive as well. Um, God bless her. We got to visit this part of the Sea of Galilee. And it's really amazing. There's this interesting thing that happened there. The way the shore comes up to the land, there is sort of a hill that goes down to the water that almost, and it's kind of curved around, it almost, almost creates a natural amphitheater with the topography. And our guide, who most of the time, if you're ever on a tour, right, and you're always in a guide, and there's probably like 30, 35 people on our tour, maybe, maybe 40, and you can never hear what they're saying, right? You're, if you're in the back, you're like, what's he saying? What's he saying about this tomb? What's he saying about this church? You, you miss half of it on a tour. But right there at that spot, he went and stood at the shoreline, couldn't quite go in the water, and we all set up on the grass in this natural geographic amphitheater, and you could hear him from 50 yards away with a conversational voice. It was as if the geography of the, the earth had created this natural spot for people to hear. And that's where Jesus goes to teach in this incredible setting as the people sit down on the hillside by the water to listen. But after he was done teaching, it was time to teach Simon something. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water. And let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, <clears throat> we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. And you can hear the tone in Peter's voice, Simon Peter's voice, can't you? Um, <clears throat> thank you, Jesus. Nice sermon you just gave. What do you know about fishing? What do you know about fishing? I have 
I was born and bred into this. My brother is a fisherman because our father was a fisherman. I have grown up on the water. I know when to fish, how to fish. We've been all night, which is actually when the fish come out. Duh, you wouldn't know that because you're raised by a carpenter and looks like you've already given that up for the public speaking circuit. So what do you know about fishing? And that's kind of how we got with Jesus when he tells us to do something. What do you know about finances? What do you know about my career? What do you know about dating relationships? What do you know about marriage, about being a teenager, about education, about parenting? What do you know about schoolwork? What do you know about anything, Jesus? Isn't that our first instinct? And, and most importantly, Jesus, what makes you think you know more about me and what I should do than me? Because here's what I know and what you know to be true. We don't like to say it out loud. I'm an expert in me. I mean, no one has invested more time and money and energy in me than me. And I know me better than anybody else. And I know what I should do and when I should do it because I know me. Unless, of course, I'm wrong about me. And there's someone else who knows me better than I know myself. Up until this point, Simon is just an associate. I mean, he just knows Jesus. He knows of Jesus. I mean, he's seen Jesus do miracles, but that one didn't require anything of him. This one's going to take a step of faith. It's easy to assume there would be some doubts. But what Simon says next, man, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Because you say so. Can I ask you a question? Is because Jesus said so enough for you? Is because Jesus says so enough for you? Peter says, against my better judgment, against all my experience, against my upbringing, against everything that my father taught me, against everything that I know to be true about the rules of fishing, I will do what doesn't make sense, what probably won't work, what my friends will think is crazy. I will do it for one reason, Master, because you say so. Is because Jesus says so enough with your dating relationships? Is because Jesus says so enough for your marriage? Is because Jesus says so enough for how you handle your money? Is because Jesus says so enough for how you spend your time, how you treat other people, or whether or not you serve in church? Is because Jesus says so enough? Or do I know me better? Or do you know you better? Jesus might call us to go out into the deep to find what we just can't find in the shallow end. And you might have to do it 
just because he says so. You and I might have to trust his way over your way. Trust what he says over what we think. Trust his way over what our parents think. Trust his way over what our friends tell us to do. Trust his way over what everybody else is doing. Trust his way against my own instincts. Here's what I know. Trusting his way over your way will 100% absolutely have a because Jesus says so element. And Simon Peter finds out what is on the other side of obedience. Says this, when they had done so, They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Sometimes Jesus just wants us to go out on the deep, get out of the shallow end, and to trust him where we can't see the bottom of the lake anymore, to go beyond our expertise. Here's what I believe is we're learning from Simon Peter in this and what Jesus wants to tell us. You might find out what Jesus wants for you after doing what Jesus wants from you. We talk about this word a lot at Mountaintop, and we have like a big sign right outside the door, for. We close every service and say, God is for you. We are for you. And I want you to know how much I believe that, that God has so big plans for you. He, he is more than able to do what we can possibly ask or imagine. He sent his son for you. God has dreams for you, visions for you, for your family, for your personal ministry, for your career, for your life. I so believe that. But we might only find out what God wants for us after doing what God wants from us. What does God want from you? What if it is to paddle out into the deep end and cast the net one more time, even if it doesn't make sense, to obey him? Simply because he said so. Listen to what Peter says. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Peter realizes that he is not worthy to be in the presence of of such righteousness, such power, such holiness. He's like, I am a sinful man. That's his confession. And up until this point, Jesus's ministry has been a solo mission. He's been on his own. And it's time to call some disciples. And when it is, he doesn't call the educated or the pious. He calls an uneducated fisherman who confesses that he is a sinful man. Good news is, sinners are just the kind of disciples Jesus is looking for. Turns out that's all he could find anyway. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Get up here, come up here. From now on, from this point forward, On the other side of obedience now, from now on, since you have just done it just because I said so, you will fish for people. I'm going to change your destiny. I'm going to give you a new career. I'm going to use the skills that you learned on the water to make bigger catches all across the earth. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, 
and left everything and followed him. I'm not going to hold your past against you, Peter. I'm going to rewrite your story and make your story a part of my story. And at that moment, on the other side of obedience, what hung in the balance at that moment for Peter to leave everything, he could have never imagined what awaited him. He could have never imagined that there was a life on the other side of obedience that he could have not thought was possible. He could have never imagined on that moment that the other side of obedience, of dropping his nets in the deep end, was a life no one could predict it. He could never imagine that he would not only be a disciple of Jesus, he would be the disciple of Jesus, the whole captain of the entire bunch. He'd never have imagined that one day he would preach a sermon in the streets of Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit would overcome him so much that people from every tribe and nation would be able to understand his words and 3,000 people would come to faith because of Peter's first sermon and the church would be born. He could never imagine that people would be simply healed because of his shadow falling of them. He could have never imagined that he'd be the most feared man in Jerusalem, not because he wielded a mighty sword, because he wielded the mighty truth of the resurrection. As he stood before the religious authorities with boldness with his fishing partner, John, he could never have imagined that Christians from all over the world would one day visit Rome not to tour Caesar's palace, but a cathedral named after him, St. Peter's. He could have never imagined that 2,000 years later that Christian families would not be naming their children after Roman emperors. Nobody knows many children named Tiberius or Nero. But we still name our little boys Simon and Peter. He could have never imagined the story that God had waiting for him on the other side of obedience. And if Jesus had told him, he wouldn't have believed him. After all, you typically only find out what Jesus wants for you after doing what Jesus wants from you. So let me ask you this question. What does Jesus want from you just because he said so will you do it will you trust in God against your own instincts against maybe your better judgment I don't know about you I want to be like Simon Peter I want to find out what God wants for me on the other side of obedience. And that means going out into the deep and doing what he wants from me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for Peter. Thank you for him taking a step of faith, trusting you, obeying you. Lord, would you empower us to imagine a life on the other side of obedience that we could never predict because we believe you are a God who wants something good for us. Give us faith, courage to do what you want from us, even when, especially when, it doesn't make sense. 
I want to invite you to stand as we close today to sing a song that we learned a little bit earlier, More Than Able, because we believe that he's more than able on the other side of obedience.